Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, a paediatric oncologist, and today I'm going to talk about clinical trials a bit more. Clinical trials, you know, research studies that involve actual human beings rather than cells in test tubes or mice or things like that. That's what clinical trials are. Now, it'd be good if you listened to my earlier few episodes on clinical trials. There was one where I explained what clinical trials are in general. Then there was one where I explained what a phase one trial is and then what a phase two trial is. And today I want to talk about phase three studies, phase three trials. So just to do a bit of revision, remember in phase one studies... We were taking a drug that had been developed and hadn't been given to human beings before. And so the adult phase one trial was the first time the drug was given to human beings. And so they started at a teeny tiny dose and and gradually gave higher and higher doses to people and worked out, well, what sort of side effects start to occur and at what dose level and what should be the dose that gets picked for the subsequent studies. So that was a phase one trial in adults, and then in children, they would start somewhere near the adult dose, so they didn't have to start at the teeny tiny doses, and fine-tune the dose for children, and again, look at what side effects occurred, and so on. Then there'd be a phase two study, and with a cancer drug, that'd be a study to give the dose that's been worked out, and see if there was some evidence that the drug was active against cancer. So, for instance, did it make a tumour get smaller? Did it make leukemia in the bone marrow reduce? Things like that. So I was looking at a sort of short-term, medium-term response. Was there some evidence that the drug was active against the particular sort of cancer? And in the phase one and phase two studies, well, most of the time they were being done in patients who had the cancer in question and who had had whatever the normal treatment is but then that treatment didn't work. So maybe the cancer kept growing or it relapsed. So they were studies where you'd exhausted all the normal treatments and so it was time to look at something experimental. Why do we only conduct those studies in those sorts of patients? Well, it's because we can't go straight to an experimental drug if we've got existing drugs that work most of the time. So for instance, if you've got a combination of drugs and you know that it's going to cure a particular tumour type in 80% of patients or 90% of patients, well, you can hardly take a patient and not give them those drugs so you can give them something experimental, something completely untested where you have no evidence yet if it's going to work. Obviously, you have to give the drugs that work most of the time. Now, it's only if the drugs don't work, well, then you can start looking at using experimental agents. So the phase one studies are done in those sorts of patients, and most of the time the phase two studies are likewise done in patients who have had the standard treatments and they haven't worked in that particular patient, or else in patients where there is no standard treatment, so whether there's certain tumour types, and there's only a few in paediatrics that are like this, where really the existing treatments aren't very good, and so you can go straight to an experimental treatment in a phase one or phase two study. Pretty unusual situation. But now we get to the phase three study. 
So now we're talking about a situation where we've worked out the right dose of the drug to give to children in the phase one study. In another group of patients, we've done a phase two study, and in a particular cancer, we've found that the particular drug is an active agent. So the drug has activity. That means that, for instance, 30% of patients given the drug had their tumour decrease in size, or 40%, whatever the definition of an active agent is for a particular tumour type. So we've seen some short-term effect of the drug in those patients. And by the way, they're patients whose cancers are really the worst of the worst, remember. They're the ones where the standard treatment's been used and it hasn't worked. So if we see a good response rate in those patients, well, that's encouraging. And that makes you think, well, this drug might have something to offer. And now it might be time to look at conducting another study, another research trial in another group of patients, but this time it'll be what we call a phase 3 study. And a phase 3 study is that research trial where we compare the new treatment to the standard treatment. Now we want to see, well, is this new treatment any better than the standard treatment? And I'll get to cancer trials in particular in a minute because most of the time in the cancer setting in paediatrics, you wouldn't give all of the patients just the new drug and compare them to patients given the old drugs. More often it would be a case of patients getting the standard treatment and then some of them getting the new drug as well and some of them not getting the new drug as well and then you would compare what happened. So I'll come to that in a minute. But first of all, let's just go through a phase three trial design outside of the cancer setting so you know what I'm talking about. So let's pick a condition. Uh, Let's say ingrown toenails. I always pick ingrown toenails. Now suppose there's no drug treatment for ingrown toenails. And somebody comes up with a drug for ingrown toenails that makes them stop being ingrown toenails. So they do a phase one study and prove it's safe to give this stuff to humans and we know what dose to give. Then they take a bunch of patients with ingrown toenails and they give them and they see some beneficial effect on ingrown toenails. Okay, now we want to do the phase three study. Now we really want to see if this drug is better than standard treatment. And there's a few ways you could do this. For instance, suppose there was no drug for ingrown toenails. Then you might do a comparison of treatment with the new drug compared to no treatment at all. So you would take some patients with ingrown toenails and you would go to the patients and say, look, we want to enrol you on this clinical trial to look at our new drug for ingrown toenails. And if you're in this study, and if you give consent for this study, we're going to randomly allocate you to either receive the new drug or to receive no drug at all. Okay? And so if the patient agreed to it, then they'd be enrolled in the study. And suppose we would get 200 patients enrolled in the study, and the computer would randomly allocate them to either get no drug at all or to get the new drug And then 
after three months of treatment, for instance, then we would check their toenails and see if the rate of improvement was higher in the patients given the drug than in the patients not given the drug. Well, if we found that, you know, 90 out of 100's ingrown toenails got better with the drug compared to 5 out of 100 in the other group, well, that would be evidence that the drug worked. And so that would be a positive outcome for the drug, and that might be a reason to say, well, we should put this drug on the market and start selling it for ingrown toenails. A variation on that design would be to use what we call a placebo drug. So suppose this ingrown toenail drug is a tablet. Well, instead of giving patients the tablet and another group they get nothing, well, you give the other group a placebo tablet. So you give them a tablet that looks exactly the same as the new drug, but it's just a sugar tablet, for instance. That's what you call a placebo. Now, this is an even better design. In this situation, the patient won't know if they're getting the drug or the placebo. And so this won't bias their mind about how much is my toenail hurting, okay? So if they think they're getting the wonder drug, they might just imagine that their toenail feels better because they're getting the wonder drug. But if they're getting a tablet and they don't know if it's the wonder drug or the placebo, well, that controls for all of those factors. Even better is if the doctors that evaluate the toenails, if they don't know either what the patient's getting. So that's what you call a double-blind controlled trial, placebo-controlled trial. So you would have 100 patients on the wonder drug, 100 patients on the placebo, but the patient doesn't know which one they're getting and the doctors don't know which ones they're getting. But somewhere in the database is a code that says what each patient was getting. And so the patients all go through their treatment and they report any side effects and then they report if their toenails get better and then we can work out afterwards, well, did the wonder drug really work better than the placebo? So again, that's a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomised phase 3 study. The ultimate improving if a treatment is better than nothing or if a treatment is better than the standard. So another variation would be to give the wonder drug to half the patients and to give whatever the standard drug alternative might be. So instead of a wonder drug versus nothing, it might be wonder drug versus penicillin or something. I don't know. And the thing about designing any of these studies is that you need to have enough patients in the study to answer the question properly. And it all comes down to statistics. If we go back to our ingrown toenail drug again, for instance, if we just treat five patients with the wonder drug and five patients with the placebo, well, you can imagine that you could just randomly get some sort of difference between the two groups that wasn't a true difference. You know, it's a bit like tossing a coin and getting five heads in a row. It can happen. So if you only have five patients in each arm of the study, well, that's not going to have adequate statistical power to answer the question. So you need to know, well, what's the rate of ingrown toenails spontaneously getting better? And you need to know how many patients it will take to prove a difference between the wonder drug and the placebo. And the statisticians will crunch all the numbers and they'll come up with some figures and they'll say, well, look, if you put 
200 patients on the study, that's 100 on the wonder drug and 100 on the placebo, if there really is a 20% advantage to your drug compared to placebo, well, you'll probably be able to detect that difference and prove it beyond doubt. This is what statisticians do for a living. So it's all about having adequate numbers in a phase 3 study. So let's go to cancer now and paediatric cancer in particular and look at a phase 3 study. Now very often it's in this phase 3 situation that we start using patients who have been newly diagnosed with a particular type of cancer. So instead of studying patients who've had standard treatment and it didn't work, like we did in the phase 1 and phase 2 studies, well in the phase 3 study, this is very often the study that we do with patients who are right at the start of treatment of their particular cancer. So they are what you call newly diagnosed patients. Now in this situation, most of the time, we will have some form of standard therapy that we have worked out as the way to treat that particular cancer. So let's pick a type of cancer. We'll pick Wilms tumour of the kidney. Okay, so Wilms tumour of the kidney. We will have a standard treatment that we've worked out and it might be to operate and take out the kidney and then to give two different drugs, two different chemotherapy drugs for six months. Suppose we know that to be the standard treatment. That is, it's the treatment that we've worked out in previous trials to give us the best results as far as curing Wilms tumour, suppose. Now, suppose that we know from our previous studies that that treatment works most of the time, but it doesn't work all of the time. So let's pick a number. Let's say it works 80% of the time. Wilms tumour does tend to have a good outlook, by the way. So don't lock in that figure of 80%. I'm just picking on it for now. Suppose with our standard treatment, 80% of the time patients are cured and the cancer never comes back. Now, that's a pretty good result. On the other hand, there's still room for improvement, either because the remaining 20% of patients aren't cured with that treatment, or perhaps we find that the treatment is quite toxic. It might have severe side effects. Now, it usually isn't that bad in Wilms tumour, but it's still chemotherapy. They're still strong drugs. So we either want to improve the chances to cure the cancer or to reduce the side effects or both. So there is room for improvement. Okay, now, so somebody's been conducting a phase one study and then a phase two study of a certain drug and suppose they find that in the patients with Wilms tumour in that phase two study, well, 50% of the time the new drug, and we'll call it exomycin, okay? So we gave exomycin, and we found that in the phase 2 study, 20 out of 40 patients had their tumours reduce in size. Well, we'd say, wow, this exomycin, it looks like a good drug. Let's try it in a phase 3 study. And that is the crossbar that you have to be able to get over. You can't move a drug into a phase 3 study unless you've worked out that it's safe to give worked out the dose to give, worked out the schedule, you know, is it every week or is it every three weeks or is it every day? And you have to have some preliminary evidence that it's active against the tumour type. Now, when you've got all of that information together, then you might say, okay, 
let's conduct a phase 3 study of exomycin. And then you would look at, well, how are we going to design this study? Now remember, we've got this existing combination that cures 80% of the patients. So we can't compromise that result in the 80% that would be cured with those two drugs, the standard treatment, right? So we have to design a trial that maintains that 80% figure, but has the potential to improve on it through adding the exomycin, and can scientifically answer the question for us, did it improve the outcome? And we want to be sure of the result. We don't want to be left with this impression, ah, yeah, it seemed like things were a bit better, you know. These trials are very important. If exomycin really improves the outcome in Wilms tumour, well, we're going to lock that drug in for years, decades to come. It has big implications. And if exomycin has some other side effect we better be sure that it's improving the outcome because it will get locked in for years, for decades. So we've got to be sure of it. So the study committee gets together and they say, all right, well, let's see how can we evaluate exomycin in this Wilms tumour. And they will say, well, right, well, everyone has to still get the standard treatment. So they still have to have their kidney removed and they all still need to get the two drugs. But we also want to give half the patients exomycin as well, and the other half will just get the standard treatment. So they'll need to have some information, of course, about whether you can give exomycin with the other two drugs. So someone might have done a little pilot study where they gave the two drugs and they added in exomycin and found, yes, you can give all three drugs together. Or you can give the existing two drugs and then give the exomycin, something like that. They'll have come up with a way to give the standard treatment and to give the exomycin drug. Remember, there is no drug called exomycin. I made up that name just for today. So now the study protocol will be written, and it will have what you call the control arm of therapy. The control arm is the standard treatment for Wilms tumour of this particular type. So that's the surgery and the two drugs. And then it will have the experimental arm of the study. And that'll be the standard treatment plus the exomycin. The next thing to know is that we want to allocate patients to the two arms of the study randomly. We don't want doctors choosing which arm of the study they're going to put patients in. And we don't want patients picking which arm of the study they want to be in. The reason is that any time you allow people to choose which arm of the study to put patients in, well, then you can bias the whole study. So you might end up with the worst patients getting the three-drug combination and the better patients getting the two-drug combination. Eventually, if we end up with 200 patients on each arm of the study, we want to know that they are comparable patients. That is, they've got the same sort of average age, their tumours are about of the same size, all of the things that go to the seriousness of their cancer are matched in the two arms of the study. Because then if the exomycin group do better, you won't be able to say, ah, yeah, but they got better patients in that side of the study. Or if we don't see a difference between the two arms of the study, you won't be able to say, ah, yeah, but that's because all the worst patients were in the experimental arm of the study. Now, we need them to be randomly allocated. You know, the computer tosses a coin for each individual patient and says, 
they get the standard treatment or they get the experimental treatment. Now, sometimes people say, wow, how can this be ethical to let a computer toss a coin and randomly allocate patients to what treatment they're going to get? Very good question. But it is ethical. But it can only be ethical under certain circumstances. Firstly, the patient or the parents more often have to give their consent to that randomization. So no one's getting randomized without the parents knowing about it. Secondly, the ethics committee or the institutional review board needs to have signed off on this study. They need to have given their approval for this study. And as part of that process, they will want to see the science that supports the study. The next thing to know is that they really have to be able to say that we don't know if there's any difference between the two arms of the study. If we really knew that one arm of the study was better than the other, it would be completely unethical to be randomizing patients. Or if we knew for sure that there was no difference at all between the two arms of the study, then likewise, it would be unethical to randomize patients to get an extra drug and extra side effects for no benefit. So we really have to be able to say that we don't know if there's a difference between the two arms of the study. And that's the only way it can be legitimate to randomize patients. The next thing we need to be able to say is that there is the potential for benefit with the experimental arm. You can't do a randomized study that includes an experimental arm where you've got no basis for thinking it might be better. So you need some evidence, something from your earlier trials to support the notion that the experimental arm might be better, either might be better at curing the cancer or might be better at curing the cancer and reducing side effects, something like that. So they're the ways that a randomized study can be ethical. You have to have the parents' consent, you have to have the ethics committee, and you have to be able to say, I really don't know if one arm of the study is better than the other. Because as soon as you do know, it's no longer ethical to randomize the patients. And by the way, as the study goes on, there will be an independent committee monitoring the data as it's coming through to check that a difference isn't emerging between the two arms of the study. And there'll be something called a stopping rule in place. So the stopping rule will say, well, as soon as you see, for instance, that the experimental arm of the study is doing 10% better than the standard arm, well, then you have to stop the study. So that's the stopping rule. And often when you're conducting a randomized study like this, the doctors and the patients are not being given you know, weekly updates of how each arm of the study is going. Normally that data is being kept at head office and not everyone has access to it. But what we do know is that the data monitoring committee does have access to it. And so if they're still enrolling patients, then that means that a difference has not yet been demonstrated between the two arms of the study. And that's why the study can continue to enroll patients. The other time when they stop enrolling patients is when they've got enough patients. The statisticians will also have worked out, well, if you're going to get a 10% improvement by giving exomycin, well, you will need 478 patients and you'll need four years of follow-up and then 
if the difference is there, you should be able to prove it. So when you get to enough patients, then you stop enrolling patients. So the study stops either because a difference emerges between the two arms of the study or because the statisticians say, you've now enrolled enough patients, you should be able to prove a difference exists if there really is a difference. I mean, otherwise you just keep enrolling forever. Well, that's no good. Anyway, back to enrolling the patient. So now we've designed a study, we've got a control arm or a standard arm of the study, and we've got the experimental arm of the study. So it's giving the two drugs plus the exomycin. And now a patient comes along to the hospital and they've got this Wilms tumour. Well, now we look at them very closely and see if they are eligible for the trial. So they have to have the particular type of Wilms tumour. And suppose we say it has to be stage 2 Wilms tumour. And they have to have normal heart function and normal liver function and normal blood counts. And then they can be eligible for the study. Then we say, okay, well, they look like they're eligible for the study. Now we can go and talk to the family about it. And that discussion should go something like this. Well, first off, we explain to them what the Wilms tumour is. And then we explain to them what the standard treatment is and that they can have that standard treatment and that our expectations are, in this particular example, that say 80% of the time patients will be cured with this treatment. And we have to stress to them that they are able to have this treatment, that they don't have to be in research trials, the treatment is completely available to have standard treatment, and if they don't want to be in a research trial, that's fine, no one will hold it against them, no one will be angry with them, it won't compromise their care at the hospital, they will still get first class, state of the art care. Next we can go on and describe what this research study is all about. And we explain that there's this new drug, it's called exomycin. We've got reason to think it might improve things, but we have no proof that it will improve the chances to cure the cancer. But we have reason to be interested that it might be a step forward in Wilms tumour. And then we can explain to them that if they wish to be in the trial, then they can be. They would have to sign the consent forms and then the computer will randomise them to either get the new drug, or just the standard treatment. And they don't have a choice in the matter. And we don't have a choice in the matter. And in fact, we shouldn't even have a strong opinion in the matter. If we really think that one arm of the study is better than the other, well, we shouldn't be randomising the patients. We can be hopeful that one arm will end up being better than the other. We can be excited about the potential that one arm of the study will be better than the other. But if we really believe that one arm is better than the other, then we've got no business randomising patients. And the consent process covers a lot of other things. We have to stress to them that we don't know that this new drug will improve things, that it might bring new side effects, that they can pull out of the study if they want to at any time. Usually there will be no payment to the family, for instance, for being in the study, that we will keep them up to date with any new information that comes out that might change their willingness to be in the study. So, for instance, if some other mob was studying exomycin and another group found exomycin was really fantastic, well, we commit to telling the family that if new information comes out on exomycin, we'll let them know. So that process is called a consent conference, and 
then we can give the parents the informed consent forms and the parent information sheets and they can go away and read those and then see if they would like to participate in the trial. And if indeed they do, then they can sign the forms and then we can go ahead, enrol the patient, usually via the computer, and then the computer will spit out for us an answer. What treatment are we going to give? The standard treatment or the experimental treatment and whatever it is, then we can get on with the treatment and make our way through the protocol. So we'll give the treatment. It might involve taking out the kidney, like I said, giving the standard two drugs with or without the exomycin, make our way through the treatment, fill out all our data reporting forms back to head office for the study, usually with the patient's name liquid papered out so that they can't reveal anything about the patient. And then we follow the patient for the years afterwards. And the main thing that we'll be reporting is what happened to the cancer. So remember I said that in this hypothetical model that about 80% of the time children with this form of Wilms tumour are cured. Well, if the patient continues to do well and the cancer's gone and there's no sign of it, well, we're reporting that back. So every six months, for instance, we report back patient as well, no sign of cancer. On the other hand, if the cancer relapses, if it grows back, we see it on one of our x-ray scans, then we report that back to the study office, the head office of the study. And all the centres around the world that are participating in this big research study are all reporting the results back to the head office and then they can work out, well, what percent of the patients were cured with the standard treatment and then what percent were cured with the experimental treatment. And for instance, they might define at the start that we would like to see the rate of patients being free of cancer four years from the end of the treatment, for instance. They might say that it's normally 80% with standard treatment, and we want to see, well, is it 90% with the new treatment? See, that's one of the differences here with this Phase 3 study compared to the Phase 2 study. Remember in the Phase 2 study, it was just a case of, did the tumour get smaller? Or did the leukaemia reduce in the bone marrow? In a Phase 3 study, you're mostly looking at how many patients were ultimately cured. And they'll either measure the overall survival of patients, how many are alive five years later, Or they may measure something called event-free survival. So that means they're alive and the cancer never came back. Event-free survival. So that is often the main endpoint in a phase three study. What is the event-free survival of the new combination compared to the old combination? And phase three trials, by the way, tend to be much bigger studies in terms of how many patients need to be enrolled on the study. Remember, with a phase one study, we just needed three to six patients at the first dose level, then three to six at the next dose level. And, you know, you could finish off a phase one study with just a small number of patients. And then in a phase two study, you might need 30 or 40 or 100 patients. Well, with a phase three study, 
you normally need much larger numbers of patients, particularly if your starting point is at 80%, let's say. So if 80% of patients are cured with your standard therapy, well, you've only got a certain amount of room for improvement, and suppose it's to get to 90%, that will need a large number of patients to prove that the difference you see isn't just a random one. You know, again, it's like tossing a coin and getting three heads in a row. You can just observe a difference that isn't a true difference. Or you might not see a difference even though there is a difference. So the statisticians will work out all the numbers and they'll say, well, if the starting point is 80% and if you want to see an improvement to 90%, you're going to need 400 patients in each arm of the study and then that should be enough. So phase three studies tend to be very big studies with large numbers of patients and they normally accrue the patients over many years. So you can see you really want to have good quality science in place before you embark on a big randomized phase three study. It's going to go for years. There's going to be years of follow-up and the results are critically important because whatever you find is going to influence treatment for years and decades to come. Now that's one way of conducting a phase three study, the one I've described. So you you take the standard treatment and then you add an extra drug to it. There are other variations. There are trials, for instance, where we have a very good outcome with a certain treatment and we might actually look to reduce the treatment but still maintain the same chances of curing the cancer. For instance, we might identify that there's a particular group who do particularly well and it might be good to reduce the treatment, to get rid of one of the nastier drugs, for instance, in the combination. So there we'd be randomizing patients to get the standard treatment or to get a slight reduction in the treatment. We might do a study where we just give the same drugs to both arms of the study, but we give them for a longer duration of time in the experimental arm or a shorter duration of time, or we give slightly higher doses. There's all sorts of modifications to treatment that can be evaluated in this phase three setting. And not always is it Is it going to be a randomized study? Very often it is, but there's other ways of doing these things. But ultimately, a phase three trial is the one that looks to compare a treatment to another treatment in terms of its ultimate efficacy, really, the chances to cure the cancer. And by the way, one of the things that I haven't really seen much, in fact, I can't think of a time I've seen at all, would be the use of a placebo drug in paediatric cancer. Off the top of my head, I can't really remember a trial in childhood cancer where we've been randomly allocating patients to have a placebo versus an active drug. It may well have happened at some point, but I can't really think of one. It wouldn't be the norm. Certainly, if that was on the table as part of the trial design, parents should be well and truly informed about it. It's not the sort of thing that's going to be happening without parents being told about it. But really, I can't remember a situation where we've had a placebo-controlled trial as far as a cancer drug being concerned. So that's phase three trials. Again, we have to have done the dose-finding trial, the phase one toxicity sort of trial. We have to have done a phase two study that showed the particular drug to have some activity against the cancer in question. 
And then we can get to phase three studies, and that's where we really compare head-to-head the standard treatment to an experimental treatment. Usually we would look to a design that incorporated the standard treatment but gave the capacity to improve on the outcomes through some change in treatment, addition of a new drug, change of a dose, something like that, that had the capacity to improve the results. These studies are very often done in the patient who is newly diagnosed with the cancer rather than patients who have had a relapse. You can do phase three studies in the relapse setting too, by the way. But very often we're talking about the newly diagnosed patients and these tend to be big studies that go on for years and years to really prove if a new treatment is a step forward. Informed consent is vital. Parents have to know all about it. They have to give their permission to be in such a study. And if they don't want to be in the study, then they're perfectly entitled not to be and just to have their child treated with the standard treatment. There are reasons why parents might not want to be in a randomised study. Some parents just don't like the feel of randomization, the notion of a computer randomly allocating their child to treatment. On the other hand, there's reasons why they might want to be in it. They might see the opportunity to have the new drug given to their child and there may be reason to hope that it will improve the chances to cure the cancer. But then they have to accept that they may be randomized not to receive the new drug. But these phase three studies, these are really the big ones. These are the studies that can set up a treatment to be locked in as the new standard if the treatment does turn out to be superior. We commit a lot of resources and a lot of time and efforts to these studies. They're really the critically important trials. And if you're a drug company, by the way, it's through conducting a successful phase three study that you can then go to the regulators and have your drug approved for marketing. So they're very important to drug companies trying to introduce a new drug to the market. In pediatric cancer, very often that's not the key priority. A lot of the drugs get to market on the basis of adult studies and so our phase three studies are very often more looking at defining a new standard of therapy. Anyway, I hope this has all made sense. Thanks for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff. Remember to leave questions or comments at the Facebook page, Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. Leave me any questions or things I can clarify. But for now, I'll leave it there and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.